It's our scripture reading for today is from John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. With our family leaving for vacation next week, uh, or this week, we are excited for hot weather. Uh, it's going to be 89 degrees in D.C. on Tuesday and 95 degrees on Saturday in Florida, and we'll be melting, and it will be glorious. Uh, summers in San Francisco are weird. It's sunny today, but that's unusual. It's really disorienting if you grew up anywhere else. Uh, as a Floridian, I don't think sweaters should be worn in June. Um, but all of our like kid pictures, like first day of school, they're they're like bundled up in August, uh, which is very different. Uh, surely you, if you've been around, you've heard the line from Mark Twain: "The coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco." Um, it's a fun line that people throw out a lot. Only Mark Twain never said it. Um, the line was first attributed to him in 1928, but not about San Francisco. It was about Duluth, Minnesota. <laughs> Uh, but not even that is true. The Duluth joke goes back to a newspaper article about a weather reporter named R.Q. Grant. And that's kind of lame, right? Because a surefire way to ruin a conversation is to say, well, you know what R.Q. Grant said. Like, no one wants to hear that, right? The joke doesn't work unless Mark Twain says it. Uh, we need him to say, the coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Uh, lots of quotable lines have been misattributed to Mark Twain, um, and it, it, it's because it lends a line legitimacy. Uh, Robert Hurst is an English professor at Berkeley, and he's the editor of the Mark Twain Project, and he explains the temptation uh, to misquote him like this. He says, it's like an insurance policy. Attributing something to Mark Twain adds to the joke. When they first hear his name, people are disposed to laugh. They're ready to laugh. That's the chief reason he's saddled with so much stuff that isn't his. Well, today's Bible story, which is the story of the adulterous woman in John chapter 8, has a similar effect on us and puts us in a similar position. If you open your Bibles to John 7.53, and even your Bible apps, um, and also the journals that we provided, it has a disclaimer in the text, like so sort of separating 52 and 53. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. And then if you look in the footnotes, the, the ESV will clarify. It says, some manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. Others add the passage here or after 736 or after 2025 or after Luke 2138 with variations in the text. And then finally, just so you don't forget, the editors of almost any modern English Bible will put double brackets around this story, like a warning label on a pack of cigarettes, right? Just to make sure that you know this is not original. Um, and so what's going on? Uh, well, John 8 is a wonderful story about Jesus mercifully defending a woman caught in adultery. Uh, it's, it gives us the famous line to don't throw, uh, he who is without sin, may he not cast the first stone. He saves her from execution. It's a beautiful, beloved story uh, from the Bible, but the passage was almost certainly not originally included in the Gospel of John. 
Uh, Today's passage from chapter 7, verse 53 to chapter 8, verse 11 is a later addition uh, to the book of John. And of course, when you read it, and we'll read it later, it sounds authentic to the person and ministry of Jesus. It very well could have happened. We can't know one way or the other. Uh, But unfortunately, we really can know with the highest degree of confidence that even if John knew about the story, uh, he chose not to include it in his gospel accounts. In fact, none of the gospel writers chose to put it in. Maybe they knew it happened, but they didn't put it in there. So what do we do with this beautiful story? Uh, Christian pastors disagree and have for centuries. This has been known for a long time. It's not a recent discovery. Um, its suspicious origin has been questioned for a long time, uh, which is, I think, why it's still included, is because there's so much debate. Uh, Some pastors will choose to skip it. Some people will preach it. Uh, There's a case to be made for both. Um, I personally would skip it. But I thought, you know, it might be a better thing for us to take the opportunity to walk through the disagreement this morning. We don't get to talk about where the Bible comes from very often. It doesn't come up a lot. Uh, inside a church setting, but it does come up a lot outside a church setting. Um, Lots of people will bring up their questions and doubts about the Bible's reliability. Um, There's a whole lot that we can learn from working through challenging questions like this. Um, So today will be a different kind of Sunday sermon because John 8, 1 through 11 is not sermon material. Uh, But what do we do? Christians are people of the book. Um, We, what does that mean in practice? Uh, We believe the Bible is inspired by God, written by the Holy Spirit through anointed men. Because of its divine origin, we also believe the Bible is without error. Our church believes in the complete trustworthiness and therefore the full authority of the Bible. But given John 8, how can that be? Uh, So when we say the Bible is without error, Are our English translations inerrant? Are they without error? Which one? Because they are subtly different, the NIV, the ESV, the King James Version, whatever. Um, Are only the Greek manuscripts inerrant? And which one of those? Uh, What about when they disagree? Who gets to decide? How do we determine? Um, It's important that we don't skirt around hard questions like this, especially in a city like San Francisco, uh, because they come up in conversations with friends and family when you are seeking to share the gospel, when you're sharing uh, scripture, uh, many people in our city, people you and I know, will defend their resistance to Christianity by maligning the Bible's reliability. And so they'll say it's riddled with errors. They'll say it's contradictory. It was written centuries later, edited by men to control others. You'll hear all of these things. And while for the most part, I can tell you with confidence that our modern translations are so very trustworthy, uh, more reliable than any ancient document, hands down. It's not even close. Historical and manuscript evidence are overwhelming. We have almost no reason to doubt our Bible's authenticity and many reasons to trust that the Gospels in particular are very, very accurate. But then you have John 8, and it's like a hair in your soup, right? You order tomato basil soup, It looks delicious. You want to dive in, but there is a hair floating on top of it. Like, what do you do with that? And people have different tolerances for hair in food, right? I don't think there's anyone who doesn't remove the hair, uh, to be fair. I I think no one's going to try to chew through the hair, right? Um, 
if you're like me, I am able to remove the hair and completely dissociate, and like it never happens, and enjoy my meal. Um, that's me. I can do that. Some of you keep eating, but it ruins your meal. You can't stop thinking about it, and you never go back to that restaurant again. And then other people push it away and won't touch it, right? Um, they're going to walk away, order something different, move on. That's how the different sort of tolerance levels of this kind of reality is among people. People have different tolerances of it. Uh, so what do we do with John 8? Um, not only do what do we do personally, but how do we love and care for people in different places um, where they're at? It's an important question. Um, what were Satan's very first words in Scripture? Did God really say? That's the very first word that Satan asked. And ever since then, humanity has wrestled with that nagging question, did God really say? That's the temptation, that's the fight. Can I trust the Bible? Is it trustworthy? And even when I'm convinced, yes, I can trust the Bible, we still have to ask ourselves, well, how do we trust it? What is the Bible good for? What kind of document is it? Do I trust it like a math equation, like a fixed law of the universe? Is it like a scientific theory? which can be tweaked with new evidence, but the generally stays the same? Is it philosophy or theology or history, some combination? What is human about the Bible? What is divine about the Bible? These are big questions, and hopefully wrestling with this text this morning will help us approach the answers um, in an, a, a bit of a, a different kind of sermon. Let's pray first, though. Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you did not leave us, as Paul says, to grope around in darkness, just trying to feel our way to the truth, but you sent your son, the light of the world, to um, reveal what God is like, um, to reveal your posture towards us, your posture of love and mercy and kindness. Um, we're so grateful for it. We're grateful for the Bible that we have and all the work um, and effort over centuries to preserve it um, and bring it to us and translate it for us in our native tongues. Um, we need your help to continue trusting you. We all, in various ways, still hear Satan tell us, uh, did God really say, and ask us that question. And so would you help us to know what you did say and to stand firmly beside it. I pray for um, all those here with doubts um, in the room. Would you speak to them by your spirit and comfort them? Um, I pray for all of our friends and family and neighbors who have doubts about the scripture. Um, would you uh, equip us to be able to um, speak comfort to them as well? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I am just curious, uh, how many people, but sort of, I don't want to show of hands, how many people already knew about the questions around this story? Did anybody already know about the questions? Yeah, a few, few people knew about it. Whether you knew or not, how many people are sad about it because it's a beautiful story? Like, how many people sort of, like, wish that this was not a problem? Um, and then how many people are really troubled by it? Like, kind of, it, like, it makes you uneasy. Um, my goal by the end is that we would know the truth about the story and that we would no longer be sad or troubled. That's the hope. And I think there's actually a way to approach this story 
um, and approach this reality um, to not just not be sad or troubled, but to be really hopeful and encouraged and confident. And so that's, that's the goal. Uh, but first, the bad news. What is the case against John 8 being a ritual? Uh, in the 20th century, Bruce Metzger is the guy when it came to textual criticism. Um, and textual criticism is basically a forensic science. It's the first step in the long process of producing an English Bible. And so how do we get an English Bible? It doesn't just land in our laps, um, but it starts with scholars, people, uh, churchmen and women, uh, devoting themselves to all the manuscripts, and they gather the thousands of Greek manuscripts and pieces and minuscules and scraps, the quotes from other people who are quoting the Bible. They gather them all together, and then they compare them and analyze them in order to approximate what exactly the original manuscript, which we don't have, what did it say? Um, it's like, uh, it really is like a CSI episode where they're, they're, they've got, you picture a board with all kinds of like red um, yarn going various ways. And there's actually a pretty sophisticated science behind the technique of restoring text. And it's not only applied to the Bible, it's applied to any ancient text. Uh, when you, you group manuscripts in families and by age and then you work backwards, um, it's like a logic puzzle. And it's very doable, especially for the Bible, because we have literally thousands of pieces of evidence. Um, so many, so that scholars can be really, really confident. Most scholars will talk about it being like 96, 97, 98% confident of what the original authors said. But when it comes to John 8, um, their confidence is uh, in the opposite direction. So Bruce Metzger uh, says about John 8, the evidence for the non-Joannine origin of the pericope of the adulteress, the story of the adulteress, is overwhelming. And why does he say that? Uh, textual critics look at external evidence and internal evidence. So externally, the most important evidence against John 8 is, is the external evidence. That's what your ESV journal says. The earliest manuscripts do not include this story. And the ones that do include it put it in different places. And so you know immediately, like, man, something is off about this. These scientists are like, man, what, what is going on here? And so first, our earliest and best manuscripts do not include this story. Um, and it's not just the earliest from a certain region. It's broadly positioned. So when they gather manuscripts from all over the early church world, um, it's missing. And the earliest, it shows up first in the 5th century, but only in the Latin church. So only in one branch of the church does it sort of show up. And even when it is included, it's not included confidently. And so scribes insert the story in different places. Uh, most of the time it's here in 752. Sometimes it's a few verses earlier. Sometimes it's in chapter 20, which is pretty far away, and sometimes it's in the book of Luke. And so it, the vision that you get is like scribes who, who know something's off and they're trying to fix it. They're trying to see like, well, maybe this is a better place. They're, they're trying to go back to the original wording. Um, and that's why even when it is included in a manuscript, it's included with markings just like in our Bible. Um, little notes from the scribe that sort of tell the reader, hey, we're not sure about this passage. So th those markings go all the way back to the 5th century, where scribes immediately are sort of like, I don't know about this. Now, it's easy to hear this kind of process and be concerned and think that the whole Bible is suspect. Um, and I think we should actually feel the opposite, and for two reasons. 
first, the transparency of the process throughout church history and today should encourage us. If the Bible was written by men wanting to squash dissension and force uniformity, they wouldn't have been so open about their reasoning, um, about the variation between manuscripts, but they are very open open about it. The question of John 8 isn't something new. Uh, So St. Augustine in the 5th century speaks openly about the question. He thinks it's authentic, and so he comments on it, but he starts by being really clear that um, this isn't in every manuscript. Erasmus, uh, who compiled the first Greek New Testament in the 12th century, later than that, 1400s, um, would, it would be translated into English in the King James Bible. He chose to include it, but also explains himself. And so he wouldn't be surprised by this. Um, even now, the fact that your Bible app warns you about it is encouraging, that no one is trying to trick anyone. Uh, my Greek New Testament, um, I have a Greek New Testament. In the footnotes, it lists every significant variation and the manuscripts where it can be found. And so it's very obvious that, like, in the bottom here, there's all these little codes and stuff where I can know every version and where it is. And then there's a separate book. There's a companion book that explains why they chose this version. Um, it's very uh, public. There's a project uh, called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Um, it's trying to digitize every scrap of the New Testament we have. And so here's a picture of John 8 from a 4th or 5th century manuscript. Uh, It's at the Smithsonian, so maybe I'll see it this week. Um, And it does not include the adulterous woman, but but you can look at thousands of images of original manuscripts. Um, So the church has always been very public. And then the second piece of encouragement is that even if the later church wanted to change the Bible to rid the church of what they thought was heresy, it would have been impossible. There's too many, like, things to fix. Like, you couldn't have, there's no one who can, no one but God who could sort of go and supernaturally change it. The cat was out of the bag. Because within 100 years, we have people from all over the Roman Empire who are quoting the gospel, meaning they had copies Um, within 200 years, the Gospels are being translated into other languages. And so we don't just have Greek manuscripts. We have Coptic, Latin, Syriac, later into Arminian and Gothic, Anglo-Saxon, Arabic, Georgian, Slavonic. And with so much evidence, any change is going to be found out because there is literally a paper trail. They can sort of see and put together a story and say, this is where it got changed. Um, That's the external evidence There's a lot of internal evidence against this story. Uh, John just makes more sense without it, honestly. Um, This story interrupts the flow of Jesus' sermon at the Feast of Booths, where if you remove this story, if you try to, like, just read from 52 to 812 and just skip it, it it makes a lot more sense. The language is not very John-like. It's the only mention of the Mount, Mount of Olives in the book of John. It's the only use of the word scribes. Normally, John just says Jews generically, but here he says scribes. The story itself, where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus, um, that's not something that ever happens in John. It happens a ton in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a synoptic thing, but that's not John's style. He doesn't ever say that. And so it sort of sticks out like a sore thumb when you think about what John is doing here. And so you combine that external evidence against John 8 with the internal evidence against John 8. 
And you'll understand why virtually no New Testament scholar believes this story came from the pen of John. Like, I mean, not, there's maybe like one or two um, who've tried to fight for it. And they generally have, among thousands of people, been like, sorry, it doesn't, it doesn't pass muster. It was added centuries later and only in just one quadrant of the church. And so if it wasn't original John, the next question, is it historical? Maybe it wasn't written by him, but did it happen? And so let's read it, um, and you can get your feel on it. 753, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Of course, in many ways, this story sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Um, They're trying to trap him. Uh, so that he either contradicts the law or he agrees to her execution, which would have uh, put him in conflict with the Romans and also not been his style because he's a gracious person. Um, But just like in the other Gospels, Jesus is able to really cleverly dodge their trick. Uh, It's also like Jesus in that he's confronting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and scribes, uh, which Jesus loved to do. Uh, He sides with the oppressed sinner uh, and a woman, too, Uh, which was exceptional uh, in the time. And he's doing it in a very Jesus way, right? He's both merciful and just. He's forgiving her of her sin, but also telling her to go and sin no more. It is a great story, and there is nothing objectionable at all about it. Which is why most scholars, after they tell you the story isn't original, they go on to say it seems historical. Uh, Bruce Metzger again, he says, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. It is obviously a piece of oral tradition which circulated in certain parts of the Western church and was subsequently incorporated into various manuscripts at various places. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, writes, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred, even if in written form it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books. Um, Outside the Bible, there's some support for its uh, historicity. We have one reference in the 4th century to the story from Didymus the Blind, another in the 3rd century. Uh, Then we have an account of Papias from the early 2nd century telling a really similar story. It's not quite the same. So he talks about a woman with many sins. um, And so you're not sure, like, maybe he's just remembering wrongly because he's just sort of, he's by memory telling the story. Uh, The cool thing about that, Papias, uh, it's a cool name. You should name your child Papias. Um, but he's like 100 AD, 
And so this is someone who knew disciples of the disciples, the third generation Christian. Um, There is a good chance because John lived a long time that he actually knew the author of the Gospel of John, that he, and so maybe he heard this story from John himself, Um, and that is so very cool. Um, It lends support to this, to the claim that maybe this story really happened, Um, and so a lot of people will receive John 8 as canonical in some way. They'll say it's historic, it's orthodox, it's been received by large portions of the Latin church uh, for a long time, It aligns with who we know Jesus is. It feels apostolic. The Holy Spirit in us will testify to its truth, where we find ourselves drawn to this story. And so they'll include it. I personally, um, and so I really, I share all that with you to say, like, you you do with the story what you will. And so I'm just going to sort of, like, say what I will do. I personally still don't think that that's enough to treat it like holy scripture. Um, that's why Vicky didn't read John 8 before uh, the sermon. At the top, We always read the scripture at the top of the sermon, and after it, what do we say? We say, this is God's word. Thanks be to God. And I just felt like that was too much to apply formally to this. Because if it's not part of the gospel of John, it's not the word of God. Even if it's a true story, even if it's a great story, there are lots of true great stories, but they don't have binding authority over my life like scripture does. It reminds me of those Andy Warhol portraits, you know, Warhol, the visual artist known for pop art, and he would take someone else's photo and alter it. Here's uh, Warhol's Prince series alongside the original photo um, taken by Lynn Goldsmith. And we can all see the similarity and uh, even discern which one came first, but no one doubts which one of these is inspired, right? Her photo is fine as it is, but it's not Andy Warhol. It's no Andy Warhol, right? The adulterous woman may be a true story, but it is no gospel of John. The gospels are not just history. They are theologically interpreted history. They're history through a lens, and it's so very important that that lens be inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it be a divine lens. 140 years ago, uh, the dean of Canterbury, Henry Alford, advocated a new translation to replace the King James Bible, um, and he said, a translator of Holy Scripture must be ready to sacrifice the choicest text the plainest proof of doctrine if the words are not those of what he is constrained in his conscience to receive as God's testimony. Uh, When Piper preached this story in 2011, he wondered whether it was historical, and he said, perhaps I would like to think so. Who doesn't love this story? But that does not give it the authority of Scripture. What does it mean when we say the book of John is the inspired word of God? Inspiration, um, that word is used because it signifies the breath of God. The spirit spirates, expresses God's word. And so 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture, so all of it. Inspiration is exhaustive. We can't pick and choose parts of the Bible. 
all of it is breathed out by God. And second, it's all scripture. It's the words themselves, that they are God's words. Inspiration is verbal, extending to all the details, not just ideas or concepts. And because scripture is God-breathed, then scripture must be without error, because God cannot lie. Uh, Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Uh, Notice how Jesus in John 10, he pays so closely, such close attention to the words themselves. So he's arguing with the Pharisees, and he says, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? Pointing out, he's like just looking at the word S. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Um, Inspiration is a divine activity, but it happens through human authors. Uh, So 2 Peter 1 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what you have, you don't have somebody who's sort of, uh, wasn't, was it the, what's the, I feel like there was a movie about a scripture writer who just sort of like goes into a trance and then starts writing scripture. Like that's not how inspiration happens. It's a very human book. And so we can think about the personality of John, his decisions. He was fully engaged. Uh, Greg Allison explains, so God superintended Moses, Isaiah, Luke, and the others as they composed their writings. While these authors employed their own personalities, theological perspectives, writing styles, and so forth, the Spirit ensured that what they wrote was what God wanted them to write, the Word of God, divinely authoritative, fully truthful. The doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture affirms complete participation on the part of both its divine author, the Holy Spirit, and its human authors. Moses, Jeremiah, Matthew, Paul, and the others, John, were fully engaged in the writing process. They consulted earlier writings, conducted interviews, selected the narratives to include, thought carefully, composed their writings, and more, all under the superintending work of the Holy Spirit. And so if this is what inspiration means— so that something is God's word because of its origin from the Spirit through the apostles, that means that only the original book is inspired. Um, No one denies that there are copying errors in literally every Hebrew and Greek manuscript of the Bible. There's going to be errors, Um, particularly things like numbers and those sorts of details, people switch words, all that kind of thing. Yet, with the vast number of manuscripts that we have, we're able to reconstruct the original wording with extreme accuracy. Um, And this has always been what the church believes. So this is not just a new defense that we've sort of scrambled together in light of modern, like, atheist arguments. No, like, this has always been the view of the church. Uh, There's a letter from Augustine writing to Jerome, and he says, I have learned to yield this respect and honor only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. And if in these writings I am perplexed by anything which appears to me opposed to truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said or I myself have failed to understand. As to all other writings and reading them, however great the superiority of the authors to myself in sanctity and learning, I do not accept their teaching as true on the mere ground of the opinion being held by them. 
but only because they have succeeded in convincing my judgment of its truth, either by means of these canonical writings themselves or by arguments addressed to my reason. So back to the book of John. I said at the beginning my goal was that when you leave, you would know the truth, you would not be concerned, and you would not be sad. Yeah, just as an aside, how important it is that we know the truth. The only bestseller on textual criticism, New York Times bestseller, was written by Bart Ehrman, who uses these facts, these kinds of things, and really exploits them to call into question all of Christianity. And you had a lot of people who are just like not familiar with this process, and so then they come and are just floored by it and don't know what to do. And so it's very important that we know the truth, um, that we are aware of where our Bibles come from, how we say it's the word of God. But I think in knowing the truth, we can be encouraged and joyful. Um, So if we look at uh, John 20, um, I think it teaches us how to approach this passage in particular. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so I think there are two encouragements here. So first, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. That's an amazing verse to ponder, to think about. The Gospels don't give us an exhaustive catalog of everything Jesus ever did. Uh, John even concludes his Gospel, uh, the very last verse, verse 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. When Christ comes back and we are raised to live with him forever, we are going to hear some amazing stories. And we might hear the story of this woman. Wouldn't it be wonderful to meet her and the thousands of people like her? How many adulterers has Jesus shown mercy to? How many thieves has he forgiven? How many murderers has he defended? And esteemed how many idolaters how many addicts how many hypocrites the oral history around Jesus must have been overwhelming to the early church all the stories and the fact that this beautiful story snuck into our Bibles a hundred years later should not make us sad instead it should remind us That since God sent Jesus not to condemn the world, but to save it through his death on the cross 2,000 years ago, there are literally millions of true and beautiful stories of Jesus showing mercy to sinners. It's what he does. And if we were to write it all down, the world could not contain all the books. One imagines... The Apostle John, while he was writing, spending months sort of thinking about how to compose his gospel, adding it to the other three. And you imagine his community, his church around him, always bombarding him with requests, right? Oh, remember this story, John. You've got to include that one. 
Remember when he healed my mom? Like, please put that one in. It's a good story. Remember when he rescued my child from sickness? Remember when I was out of my mind and he cast out demons? Please put that in. And John just being like, all right, all right, I'll add it to the list. Maybe we'll see. And so first, be encouraged that there are way more stories of Jesus' mercy and power than can be written down. And second, we're thankful for the stories that were written, that John chose to include. Again, verse 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These are written. That's the rub for me on whether to preach or not preach this text. Because I think when we include John 8, 1 through 11 as God's word, we lose something important. It's, it's dishonoring to both the spirit and John. John has told us he couldn't include everything. So of all the amazing things John experienced, saw, and heard, he hand-selected just a handful of stories from Jesus, and then he put them in a particular order. He worded them just so, in order that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Gospels are not junk drawers of stories from Jesus' lifetime. Each of the four Gospels are profound, wise, intelligent, cohesive works of literature. They're worthy of our meditation, our study and honor. They're worthy of devotion, memorization, because they perfectly reveal the glory of the person and work of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so the story of textual criticism, the reality of it, uh, is one of devotion, not anxiety. Uh, The church's commitment to discern the original wording is not because we're afraid that we're living a lie, uh, beating back corruption and heresy. That's not the story that we should tell. When we tell the story of how we got the Bible, we should tell it as a story of a church that is devoted to the words of God, that's joyfully giving itself to the study of manuscripts and and doing all the work because because we believe that the eternal God has spoken to us. And that means the book of John should be sacred and should be treated as sacred. The four Gospels should be sacred. The Old and New Testament, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, they are none other than the inspired word of God written so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so how can we treat the Bible as sacred? How can we not... Um, take it for granted. And so when you think about, I mean, textual critics, I, I, it's, it requires such minute devotion that I, that I don't have in me. Um, but I'm so thankful for 2,000 years of people who are giving of their lives to know the word of God, to know what it was, to, to, um, to discern it, to translate it so that I might be able to read and know, so that I might be able to receive Jesus. Hearing God's word is not an end in itself. It's given so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. According to John, that was Jesus' main message throughout his ministry when he was alive. Believe in me and in the one who sent me. 
John's mission is just to pass along that message. That's why he wrote the book. And that's the message we pass along. The reason Christians are eager for the world to know the Bible is reliable is because we want them to know Jesus is reliable. And according to the Bible, um, that's, that's the end game. Um, and what is the story? God created the earth and everything in it. And then he created humanity to love and lead the earth as an expression of our love for him and his glory. But we fell into sin when we let Satan tempt us with his question, did God really say? And ever since then, Paul says we've been groping about in darkness, trying to find our way back. God, in his grace, chose a people and revealed himself to them that they might reveal him to others, the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then at the right time, he came down to us in Christ. But even that is not enough because sin was still present and death with it. It's not enough for Jesus to just say, go and sin no more. We literally can't stop sinning. The good news, though, is Jesus came not only to convince us to believe again, to trust God. He came to get rid of sin, to die in our place, to pay the penalty of sin so that we could be free from it. And three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating death. Jesus made a safe path through death for us. If only we would, like this woman, turn from our sin, trust him to save us and follow in his steps. This is the gospel of Christ. This is what the Bible teaches. It's clearly revealed, clearly preserved in all the manuscripts. There's no question this is why John was written. This is why the church cherishes the Bible, studying every word, every letter, because of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. And now, after the resurrection, alongside this woman and the millions of people who have trusted Christ and been forgiven, we stand at the empty tomb. And maybe Jesus asks us, is there anyone left to condemn? No one, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray.